You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today I wanted to talk about something that feels like a, a big shift in terms of uh, community issues. Uh, NIPS is changing its name. Well, is it? I don't know if it is. NIPS name change has been mooted is uh, the uh, situation, I think. It has come up, I think, in the community that uh, NIPS is perhaps not the best term for encouraging diversity. It's a, a racial slur and uh, uh, is also short for an anatomical uh, aspect of the body. Um, nipples, which... Uh, <laughs> we should just call the conference nipples. We nipples. should just, just... Which is, I don't know. I mean, like, okay... Uh, <laughs> I think actually the thing was that, um, you know, the original site, nips.com, is not a site you want to go to. Um, no. And uh, every time I used to attend the conference when I was in Sheffield, one of the administrators would giggle. So um, what was interesting to me is that there are parts of the community and that makes them feel uncomfortable. And I think um, uh, the booted name change is a sort of result to see how deep that feeling runs and whether... Uh, uh, name change should be considered. We should say uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, nips.cc, which is the the official website for the NIPS conference, um, put up a little statement that just says NIPS name change. And it says, in the context of diversity issues, the NIPS executive board is currently discussing the possibility of changing the name of the NIPS conference. We have formed a committee to examine all aspects of this question. And at the end of May, after the NIPS submission deadline, we will ask the whole NIPS community for input and suggestions for a potential new name. Please be patient until then. So we have this uh, public opening to uh, to the question, right? Like we're we're talking about it now. Yeah. So, and I I am on that executive committee, so I have to be careful not to uh, reveal conversations of that. But I mean, from a personal perspective, I, I just uh, was very interested in the debate and to see the um, uh, pros and cons. I mean. Clearly, it's a big change. Things don't normally change their name. I mean, there is precedent for it. Uh, I don't know if people know that Jaguar used to be called Swift Sidecars or SS. And it was certainly seemed appropriate to change the name from SS. I think it became SS Jaguar and then it just became Jaguar. Now, this is clearly not that extreme, but I think when a community is being asked to look at diversity and, and there are issues like this is raised, I, I think it's only responsible to do so. Um, I, I don't think personally I had a strong opinion either way because I wasn't necessarily one of those that was. I mean, obviously not affected. Uh, I'm I'm like I'm like non-diverse personally. I mean, we're all personally non-diverse, but I'm not. I don't think my presence at NIPS is like particularly adding to the diversity, unless we think tall British people is the sort of underrepresented minority. Um, so so you, you sort of in that situation. I'm always interested in in hearing what the opinions are. Um, I don't know. There's certainly counter arguments in terms of, um, you know, you're changing the branding. It's been there a long time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there's a sense and some people feel, oh, politically correctness gone mad. And then there's arguments that are sort of, well, you know, if this is making a significant like portion of our potential audience feel uncomfortable. And uh, I, I think a colleague mentioned that quite often in the media, it's it's listed as the unfortunately named NIPS, you know. 
you know, I definitely wouldn't have triggered the debate myself. I think it's great we're having the debate. I love hearing other people's opinions. And, you know, there's really important members of our community that feel strongly about this. I don't feel a right to feel strongly about it in the opposite direction myself. Uh, uh, some, some apparently do. Um, but I hope it can be sort of understood that, you know, that this is about making as many people uh, feel comfortable with attending, which is it's an open conference to encourage debate and we want the full diversity of of views and and uh maybe it's uh, it makes it harder when you have that debate somewhat in the open but if we all just were to decide a new name behind uh closed rooms as well uh, closed rooms closed doors you know smoke-filled closed doors uh i don't i don't think anyone nips smokes in just don't get the wrong impression there's no cigar smoking <laughs> or pipe smoking in the meetings would be good if there was <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be a real re return to something from the 1930s. Fantastic. Yeah. But it's good to have those conversations um, in the open, in public, so that we can get a diversity of opinion. And I think it is. Yeah, it can be. It is. But also, you do, some of the you know. I think unfortunately also brings out some extreme opinion too. Of which, course. Uh, there's not much you can do about that. I think you're right. I think on balance, you you must have to have you have to have the debate in the open. Um. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm looking forward to see see what people think about it personally. Yeah, well, we'll have a link to the NIPS statement on our website, thetalkingmachines.com, and we'll bring you more about the name change as it unfolds. This week's question on Talking Machines is about ICML, the International Conference on Machine Learning, which we should say uh, you and I, Neil, we are the press chairs for it this year. Um, it's a pretty straightforward question. What are you excited about and what should I see at ICML? Um, and I have to say, I'm, I'm pretty stoked for some of the workshops that we have going on. And the workshops are shared with some of the other conferences that ICML is co-located with this year. Um, there's one around AI for music, which looks really interesting, and there's one around applications for in the healthcare space around geriatric populations. I think that's really going to be a fascinating conversation. But the, the thing that really grabbed my attention as sort of unusual is this workshop that's simply called The Debates. Um, and to my understanding, it's going to be formal debate rules, um, taking on questions like the risks and opportunities of generalized intelligence and general intelligence, and debating for and against statements like the field cannot deal with interpretability without change to core methods in the field. I think this is going to be pretty interesting to see. I don't know, Neil, what do you think? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, something when uh, you're having a workshop purely about the debates. Um, you know, I do a little bit worry, although we say this from the perspective of the talking machines. One of the things I've noticed now is that there's more people talking about AI than actually doing it. Uh, and it's much easier to talk about AI than it is to do it as well. <laughs> so, you know, if you are out there, you're listening, you're wondering, how can I have a career in AI? Just talk about it. Don't do it. It's actually hard, you know. Actually getting stuff done. That's why I'm moving into this talking machines malarkey because it's way easier to just talk about how people should do stuff than actually do something. 
And actually, the growth in the talking about AI community is really, wow, if you think the NIPS growth is big, then check out the growth in the talking about AI community. And the interesting thing, it's been going on long enough that you can already be an expert. You can have been talking about AI for a couple of years, at least. You were there early, Catherine. You don't count. You were talking about AI and ML when no one was talking about it, apart from you. I slipped under the wire. I'm somehow acceptable. You slipped under the wire. You're in the club. You're all right. You're a real expert. You're like the expert of the experts as they're talking about ML. Well, I think it's interesting to see these things take place and uh, this like the debate workshop take place at a, a forum that is mainly used for, I mean, is an academic forum. It's an academic forum for the people who are doing the thing, right? But now if those experts are actually starting to talk about what's what the like larger issues are, I think that that's really healthy and necessary because a lot of the people who are doing the talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence and all the things that get lumped together and conflated, like, don't have that expertise. And there's sort of a, like, a dearth of reasonable, realistic information in that conversation. But it's hard. I think the interesting thing is, yeah, sorry, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't um, be... You uh, called our show malarkey, Neil. (laughs) (laughs) It's very important. The AI will do itself. It's fine. The AI is fine on its own. Um, look, what I, I, so I try and get engaged in as many of these things as possible. And now I start finding I can't keep up with the rate at which I'm being asked to talk about things. Maybe this is just demonstrating I'm extremely egocentric. But sometimes I'm in meetings where I'm the only one who brings some reality in about what machine learning can actually do. And, you know, you think, well, the conversation could become utterly detached. So we've moved away from what's on ICML. Um, And I think that that can be quite dangerous. And I agree with you that actually having a debate maybe at ICML is is potentially a good thing. We've also done it in NIPS. I was very, when I was general chair, we we, uh, triggered one of the symposia in this space. And I was very supportive of that. I just worry uh, to what extent, uh, to, to the extent to which that it can detach from reality and just fly away like a thing on its own. Once you remove the physical constraints about what we can actually do, there's way more stuff you can talk about. You know, that's that's 100% true. If you just remove the guise of reality. If and you just remove have... reality and enter the realms of fantasy, then the stories get much more interesting. I'd like to talk about artificial intelligence for the moon. Yeah, the moon may be artificially intelligent already. The moon may have its own intelligence that we don't understand. We have a listener question. Is the man in the moon an artificial intelligence or is he just made of cheese? Well, most of it's made of cheese. It's hard because actually you're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and people want to know, and you're absolutely right, and sorry for getting a little bit cynical, um, but I think it is an important point underneath my cynicism the conversation can become detached. And the more people who want to talk about it, the more, um, and of course it becomes in many areas, it's the most interesting thing happening. Like there's areas of study at the moment where things haven't moved necessarily that much. And then it's like, ah, but if we add AI and if AI is going to do all these things, then that is a heady mix and there's lots of stuff to talk about. And I don't blame them. I mean, it, it sort of makes a lot of sense if you sort of take there's you know, 
philosophy changes when you talk about uh, AI. It changes considerably. Um, social sciences, if there's AI in there, you know, privacy issues, so and so things like this. But I end up in meetings where people, it's, again, characterizing the people in machine learning as if no one's ever thought about these issues, as if we haven't got fat learning, as if we haven't got all this stuff we've been trying to push and talked about on this show. But let's go back to ICML, where there's uh, other workshops on top of the debates workshop, I think, as well. Yes, there are. Yeah, the, one of the ones that I'm really excited to see is uh, the workshop on synthetic biology. I think that's going to be really fascinating. And we've seen, I think, uh, a big expansion in the number of specific groups focusing on health and biology and applications in life science. I think that's really going to be a fascinating area. Um, and what what are you excited about? Well, I should say, I just want to say, I think the debates idea is great. It just triggered around. It's not specific to that workshop. So so uh, I think you should go to the debates workshop because it's probably going to be very nicely, rationally done. Um, I'm just impressed with the diversity of workshops. I mean, I've written about this. It's so, it must be so overwhelming for students coming in to um, the field and trying to decide what to do. My advice is try and grab onto the definites and, and one of those definites can be a particular application or problem doesn't have to be an application methodological challenge that you think the field isn't solving and then try and see if there's things that's related to that try and make sure you come with a narrative if you do not have a narrative you will just feel banged around like a i don't know something that's banged around in a banged around place you know ping pong ball no, pinball. In a washing machine. A pinball yeah. in a washing machine. You will feel banged around like a pinball in a washing machine. Uh, that's absolutely right. That's brilliant. I like that. Um, so, yeah, and I think you really need to have that narrative and try and see that. ICML was always multi-track, which always confused me. I always felt, oh, I'm missing 80% of the conference. And then I'd go to dinner and whatever the talks other people had heard sounded way better than the talks i'd heard you know see i think you really want to sort of you know what are you trying to get out of it you know is a specific area um i think the the analogy that i've written about on this is uh, when you attend conference attendance um or just trying to choose your area you know what's going on in the field now still feels like this sort of proto soccer where well kids soccer where they're running around chasing a ball and uh, it's extremely difficult to get involved uh and the right thing to do is to find your position on the pitch and stand and wait for the play to come to you i mean stand or you know move move intelligently because it will, you know, chasing the ball takes a lot of energy. So if you're good at that, great. By all means, keep running around chasing the ball. If that's confusing the hell out of you and your shins are getting kicked because you're not wearing shin pads, because um, then maybe um, just step back a little bit and think about what you really want out of it. If you really want to, because you've got to get these papers, because you've got to get the big salaries at all these places, then maybe you're not doing it for quite the right reasons. If you actually care about a, a problem, then uh, then uh, I think you can use that to frame your conference. One difficulty that one mistake I used to make early doors, as it were, when I first attended conferences, is I would go around the different workshops, uh, sort of trying to follow like speakers who I wanted to hear, and that was very difficult. I think you lose the thread and the narrative of the workshop, and I think it's probably my 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 personal thing is try and stay in a workshop for minimum the, the ha a half day, the morning or the afternoon, um, or ideally the whole day. And then, then you get a sort of, I don't know, then you, I think you learn a lot more context about an area, and that's very interesting as well.
Yeah, I think one of the things that I have, one of my sort of survival methods for conferences is to take the program that they give you and just like sit down with a highlighter and go through and find the things, find the questions that look interesting, right? Like find the paper titles that look interesting or find the workshops that are proposing an interesting question. Um, and if you follow the stream of content, then you're going to have something to talk about with people when you have time for that networking space, when you have time to find those collaborators. And that's going to be much more fruitful than like um, trying to run around and be inspired by great speakers who might be speaking about very disparate things. But if you can find some sort of thread to pull on on your conference experience and like you can involve Ben Recht or Mike Jordan or Jeff Hinton's talk in that, then that's going to be like more nourishing than it is to try to like see all the celebrities who are there yeah i think that they really help like ben wrecked when he did his uh the famous alchemy talk you know that really helps set the context of the talk it's great to see those keynotes and you know that has an effect on the community whether you agree with it or not it has an effect because people will argue both sides right uh, i believe it was ali rahimi's talk but it was for the paper yeah sorry yeah yeah you're right it's ali rahimi yeah so i was speaking to ben before yeah that's right Thanks for that correction. Yeah, Ali Rahimi's. Um, then you really need to sort of like listen to those things and you can take them and put them in the context of where the field's going. But you don't have to run after them. You know, that's just providing context. Probably don't swim against stuff. You know, that's another thing. But you can go in your own direction and, uh, you know, get carried along by the currents at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll have a link to the Federated Artificial Intelligence meetings. There are a whole bunch of them on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a listener question, tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS or email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Professor Bernhard Scholkoff from the Max Planck Institute. And we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of coincidences probably and a lot, a lot of nice people helped me along the way. Um, I was, uh, so I'm not from an academic family. Uh, my, my, uh, my most of my ancestors were working with their hands. And uh, so I was a bit uh, of an outlier. Uh, I was already academically inclined early on, I guess. Yeah. But uh, so I liked mathematics and physics and this kind of stuff and uh, especially astronomy. Mm. So I wanted to become an astronomer. I uh, decided I have to study physics, mathematics for that. And then somehow I got a little sidetracked during studying. Um, I got fascinated by theoretical physics, quantum mechanics. Uh, I dabbled in this area a bit. And then at some point, I, I got this chance to spend an internship at, at Bell Labs. Oh, wow. And uh, I looked what they had there and I, I I came across the work of uh, Vladimir Vapnik, who would later become my PhD advisor, and I found that fascinating because he was uh, he was really studying uh, how to find structure in the world from a theoretical point of view. So I could, I was thinking this is a way I can continue to do mathematics, uh, but study a fascinating problem that's uh, sort of still on a conceptual level and mm. not so, not just a technical. It felt like in quantum mechanics, uh, uh, many smart people have thought about problems already for. 50 or 80 years and uh, it felt like who am I to, to make a serious contribution there right. so, so I thought uh, I'll go for something where there's still more conceptual work open so anyway I ended up uh, applying for this, this internship 
I didn't get it first. Uh, they, uh, someone gave me advice how to structure my application, and uh, which, I, which I tried to do. But then he said, I was also I was not just study mathematics physics. I was also registered in philosophy. And he said, well, better leave that out from your oh CV. No, no. And then uh, I didn't do that because I wasn't, I don't know, I, anyway, I, I had a new, new girlfriend. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go to America anyway at that point. So I ended up leaving it in, and then uh, I didn't hear for a long time. No. Then at some point, suddenly I get, I get this email directly from Vladimir Vapnik. Um, and he said, I like that you study math and philosophy. <laughs> And, uh, and it was just going to be an internship, but in his first email, I looked at it again years later, in the first email he already wrote, you will come here, you will study my new book that I'm currently writing, and then we will decide on the topic of your thesis. Oh my God. <laughs> so it sounded like he had it all planned out um, be even before meeting me. Uh, but in a, in a way, so that's what, what happened. Uh, I went there, uh, I spent some time there, started working with him. It was a very exciting time, and that's how I got into machine learning. Wow, fantastic. And where did you go from there? So I, I defended my thesis at some point. So Bell Labs is an, is an industrial lab. You can't get a PhD from them. But uh, at some point, I, I met uh, another researcher from Germany at a conference, Klaus Müller. And he asked me, well, do you, you want to do a PhD? Or you, where will you defend? I said, well, I haven't actually worried about that yet. And he said, well, why don't you come to Berlin? Uh, my, my boss can give you a PhD. <laughs> So I, I went to Berlin. He's handing them out. Come by. <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I went to defend it in Berlin. Afterwards, I stayed there for uh, another one or two years. Um, and uh, that was a fun time. Then I went to uh, Microsoft Research in, in England, Cambridge. Uh, that was also very interesting. It was a, a different world because that was a, more of a, a Bayesian machine learning lab. And it's a, it was a world that I hadn't got to know before because my training was more in statistical learning mm -hmm. theory and, and then support vector machines and these kind of things. Um, after that, I uh, uh, went, went to a startup in, in New York in, in, in biotech for another one or two years, and then I, uh, uh, I joined the Max Planck Society and started my own lab in, in Tübingen, which, which is uh, coincidentally actually very close to where I grew up in the first place. So oh, fantastic. Uh, and in between, I also I spent some maybe one year in total in Australia, but, but composed of shorter spells. So I traveled around quite a bit, but then I ended up in the same place again. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me about what you guys are uh, looking at your lab these days. What are the questions that are really exciting you? So... Um, I traditionally have worked a lot in, in kernels, but uh, my somehow it felt like uh, um, the, the field was getting more technical, and again mm. the conceptual things were maybe not as exciting as they they used to be, not anymore. And I I gradually uh, moved into a causality and causal inference as a sort of conceptual field, or, or in terms of the methodological methodological theoretical work. And uh, in terms of applications, I, I moved into uh, or did quite a bit in astronomy lately. So I went back to my my early love. Uh, and the nice thing is, in machine learning, you can do you can do anything, anything you like. Uh, right. Yeah. And you've also been working on applications to photography lately. Yes, I'm. Uh, so I, I'm quite interested in computational photography, which which is kind of linked to astronomy. Um, because one of the one of the first astronomical problems I've been looking at was, uh, or we've been looking at, was this uh, problem of reconstructing uh, images that have been uh, taken through turbulence. So mm. if, when, if you do ground-based astronomy, you always have to uh, go through the atmospheric turbulence, and you want to reconstruct a sharp image underlying uh, your observations, and uh, that's an interesting machine learning problem. 
uh, which is useful for computational photography, but also for astronomy. Uh, and then there are many other computational photography problems that are, are related to this, like the problem of reconstructing a sharp image if you have moved your camera during an exposure and things like that. So, and so, so in general, I think it's quite interesting in, in photography that this, this old paradigm that you have, you have a piece of film and you, you build an expensive lens that produces a perfect picture on this piece of film, uh, this old paradigm doesn't quite work anymore, even though we, 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 we mimicked it with our sensors. We built CCD sensors that look like film, and we kept the rest the same, but uh, then people gradually understood nowadays it doesn't matter whether you produce a perfect image on your sensor uh, as long as you can compute a perfect image from whatever you're measuring afterwards. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. And do you feel that there are direct field applications for this? Where are you, are you working on industrializing it in any way? Uh, we have a little startup uh, doing uh, image deconvolution, so for for both for correcting micro uh, blurs from uh, micro uh, sort of uh, if people don't hold their camera ste mm -hmm. steady, mm -hmm. uh, and for correcting uh, lens errors. So so that's that's one application. Uh, but at the same time, we are trying to apply things in in astronomy and working with astronomers on various problems. So. That's excellent. So so um, tell me more about the astronomy applications. Are you looking at um, huge uh, field range photos, redshift? What are you What are you looking at? What questions are you trying to answer? So we've looked at, at various problems. Uh, um, I spent a, a short sabbatical in in New York City last year. No, actually, which three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I spent a sabbatical in Cambridge last year oh, nice. and then two years before uh, in New York. It's always a major enterprise because we have three kids and they have to oh go to school, etc. So in, in, in New York, uh, I was uh, hosted um, by uh, David Hogg in the uh, astronomy and uh, cosmology department, um, but also working with uh, uh, Rob Fergus and talking to Jan Le Kuhn. But, but sort of my main uh, contact with David, David Hogg and uh, one project we worked on was a, a method to combine uh, uh, lots of astronomical imaging um, in a way. So if you have lots of images, you don't know how people set their cameras, you don't know what the, what's the exposure time, you don't even know uh, whether they've mucked around with the images uh, right, uh, right. afterwards and, and uh, sort of turn some handles to, to make them look prettier. Um, so we developed a method that would only use uh, rank information in an image. So we would say each image tells us about what's brighter than what. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't tell us any veridical uh, uh, measurements of, of how bright things really are, but mm -hmm. at least we get some rank information. Mm -hmm. But then all these images cover different parts of the sky. Uh, so we came up with a method to try to combine all of this into an overall image of the sky. Uh, that was fun, uh, but at the same time, we also started talking about this this other problem, which is uh, uh, in the field of exoplanet detection. Wow! So there's this uh, uh, satellite, a Kepler satellite, that was uh, uh, has been recording data uh, for I don't know four or five years. Yeah, it's a NASA uh, space mission. It's, it's a space telescope that was launched. Uh, it's actually not orbiting Earth, but it's orbiting Sun. It's on an orbit that trails the Earth's orbit, so it's quite far away by now. Uh, and it, it at the, the first four years, it was staring at uh, essentially staring at one patch of sky, uh, taking a sequence of, of exposures images. Mm -hmm. So we get a movie of one patch of sky, and uh, which somehow was chosen to be an interesting patch of sky. And uh, in this patch of sky, we're looking at 150,000 uh, stars. And uh, then what people are looking for is uh, uh, transit events, mm -hmm. which means there's a, a, uh, that some of these stars, or, or maybe by now we, we might think most of these stars have planets, mm -hmm. 
and if we're lucky uh, with our line of sight, then occasionally these planets will occlude part of the star. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, uh, we don't see that. The stars are just points for us, but we see a little dip in, in uh, the brightness curve. So we have these videos, and suddenly a star gets a little fainter. But that could have all sorts of reasons. Stars uh, change their brightness uh, even if they don't have planets, or there might be double stars that occlude each other. So let's say if we're, if we're interested in exoplanets, we don't want the double stars. So there are all sorts of uh, things that can happen. And... Uh, uh, and, the, and the main problem is uh, there are these, these systematic errors, as astronomers call it, uh, um, that come from the instrument. So uh, we're trying to. So one reason to do it in space is that if we do it from Earth, then we have to look through atmosphere, and that already this introduces errors that are larger than most of the signals that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So we do it in space, or no, the astronomers do it in space. <laughs> Um, in order to remove these errors, but then there are still errors left uh, because the spacecraft has to look exactly at the same patch of sky. Uh, Even tiny fluctuations uh, will lead to changes. It even has to correct for things like the the changes of the solar pressure, so the solar radiation pressure, etc. So there's this this high precision astronomical measurements, but even those are still too noisy or they're too noisy to detect many of the planets that we would like to detect. So we started talking about this problem while I was in New York, but we didn't, we didn't have a good solution or a good idea. But then in a, a subsequent visit, uh, so David Hogg likes to spend time uh, in Germany in the summer, and he uh, usually comes to Heidelberg for a while. And then he, I think it was, must have been during the next vis- his next visit to Heidelberg, he also came to Tübingen, and we spent a few days discussing. And then during one of these discussions, we had an idea that uh, turned out to work quite well. Uh, and this was inspired by, by my other interest in, in causality. Um, and the idea essentially was we're not just measuring one star, but we're measuring 150,000 stars. And mm. actually, if we look at these light curves, they seem to have a lot in common, which is somewhat surprising because uh, all these stars are light years apart right. in space. Yeah. So the idea was whatever these light curves have in common, actually, uh, it can't come from the stars themselves. It has to come from the instrument. Mm-hmm. Ah. And that's the thing that bothers us, the, the instrument effect. So, so, so we started thinking about can we uh, uh, estimate this effect of the in- instrument uh, by looking at these stars jointly? And then we came up with this method uh, where we would try to predict one star, one given star that we're interested in that moment mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the other stars. We choose some stars which are sufficiently far away that there's no light leaking over, etc. So we choose some stars where we really think these are there's no causal link to the star we're analyzing. And then uh, we predict the star of interest in terms of those stars. And then um, under some assumptions, then simply subtracting this signal this prediction from the star of interest is, is the right thing to do, and uh, this works very well. And uh, we also we, we have some nice theoretical results about it, so it's a, a nice method now. Uh, we call it half-sibling regression. And uh, using this, then we, we found some, or essentially using something like this, uh, together with the method to search light curves. So this was done together with David Hogg and uh, one of his uh, then students, uh, uh, Foreman Mackey. Uh, he's a, also a great guy, astronomer. Um, and at Dun Wang, uh, we uh, found these, uh, found a list of, of new exoplanets, um, and uh, I think about around 30 and half of them have been confirmed now. Wow! So that's, uh, that was fun, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Excellent. So are you going to use it on any other data sets besides the, the Kepler that you've had? Yeah, so we, I think so, yeah. I mean, it might be possible to also use it on, on direct imaging data, mm. so people... 
uh, in some cases, uh, if the, the star in, of interest is quite close, then one can try to get uh, some, and if the planets are sufficiently far away from the star, and in this case, uh, to get a reasonable angular separation, separation, one can try to directly image something like this. Uh, but we've also started uh, recently to try to do uh, to find micro lensing events, which is uh, yet another interesting thing in astronomy that uh, until a few years ago I didn't even know existed. So this is um, so you know there's this thing called gravitational lensing mm -hmm. that uh, uh, light gets uh, uh, changes uh, direction depending on uh, the presence of uh, masses, mm -hmm. and um, so this is used in cosmology and lensing caused by galaxies, etc. But but actually even smaller masses also a single star produces lensing. So if if we look in the direction of some far away star, let's say so far away we can't see it, mm -hmm. and then we're lucky and some other star passes through in between because everything is moving, the Milky right. Way is rotating, etc. So some other star passes through the line of sight, then we can suddenly have uh, the, the background star lighting up because it's sort of like his, this, uh, there's this lens in between that mm -hmm. bundles more light into our uh, field of view or into our direction than we would normally see, and then the, the background star lights up. And... Um, Sometimes one can even find exoplanets this way. So if, wow. if it lights up sort of twice uh, right. uh, from the star and from the planet. And uh, now the Kepler telescope has been uh, looking at uh, a very star-rich field towards the center of the galaxy, also with the hope to find such events because uh, statistically it's very unlikely to find something like this in the first place. Right. So you better look at the place where there's lots of stars. And uh, so it looks like the, uh, we, we might also find some of those, uh, which, is, which would also be fun. That's yeah. fascinating. Excellent. So you work a lot with very high dimensional data. And I think that this is something that's become more popular over the last couple of years in machine learning. How have you seen this increased interest affect um, what people are doing with high dimensional data, what questions they're asking and, and where they're taking it? So uh, you mean in machine learning or in science in general? I, machine, uh, machine learning a little more specifically. Yeah. So in machine learning, um, it's you know I, I come from this uh, field of statistical learning theory and support vector machines, and in a sense, uh, sort of one of the founding tenets of statistical learning theory is that dimensionality uh, isn't the crucial aspect, but it's the the class the capacity of a class of functions that you're using. So. Um, the dimensionality uh, of uh, of a problem and uh, sometimes then corresponds with the dimensionality of the of a class of functions or, uh, that you use to attack this problem, and then sometimes this dimensionality of the number of parameters coincides with a capacity measure, for instance, with the Wapnick Germanic <laughs> dimension. And in this case, uh, if you have large dimensionality, the problem is harder because the larger the capacity, the more data you need. But then there's also interesting cases where the dimensionality doesn't coincide with the capacity. So you might be able to solve rather high-dimensional problems if what you want to do with your high-dimensional data is a reasonably easy problem and your function class is, uh, has, is relatively well-behaved. So if the problem is such that you can use a function class which has small capacity, mm -hmm. whichever way you measure it, uh, then you shouldn't be afraid of it, even if it's high-dimensional. Mm. So that's uh, so. From my point of view, um, the the capacity is the more important issue than the dimensionality. But then I think there's there's probably other branches of machine learning where uh, in the past people were more worried about high-dimensional data, uh, but now uh, people are developing new methods and finding ways to handle high-dimensional data. And in 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 science, of course, it's it's also quite fascinating. 
uh, because it's a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a paradigm shift that in, in traditional uh, science people, people like to build simple and understandable models because the inference was always done by the scientists. So you do uh, observations, you do some modeling, maybe you have a loop between the two, um, but you always, uh, the, at every, every step, the inference is done by a human, so you have to come up with something which is reasonably simple. Mm -hmm. um, now that uh, science is moving, or some branches of science, but in very diverse areas, not just astronomy, but also uh, bi biomedicine, um, is moving towards uh, uh, much more complex models, maybe to some extent giving up the, this goal that you have to be able to understand the models, um, um, yet uh, uh, um, retaining this property that you can you can use your models to predict. So people are starting to understand that there are situations that are so complicated that uh, you can't hope for uh, understandable models, but maybe if it's useful to be able to predict, you can still at attack these problems. Yeah. And that's why people are getting interested in machine learning. So it's, so it's really, I think this is quite an interesting paradigm change in the world. And maybe it's a paradigm change that nece that's necessary in order to deal with the complex kinds of problems mm -hmm. that we sometimes have. So we are addressing a larger range of problems that maybe traditional physics or biology would have simply ignored in favor of easier to handle problems. Yeah. Right, right. So I, I feel like um, biology and um, biomedicine is another another section, like you said, that has a lot of high dimensional data that the problem, the questions were really not askable until this point. What other fields do you feel like are opening up to the idea that maybe we should just sort of ask the ununderstandable question and and see what we can we can learn about the answer? Where else do we think we're seeing I that? I think uh, it's actually quite a few. Areas. I recently uh, I got an email from someone uh, in the Max Planck Society who was working in a completely different field in the, I think it was something with sociology, mm. and uh, uh, he was mentioning there's some kind of gold rush in his field, so people are becoming <laughs> more, uh, I think he called it quantitative, uh. um, sort of people gathering data and analyzing data. It's uh, quite interesting, and actually I, I, I quite like this parallel, so a few years ago, I read with great enjoyment uh, this series of books of Isaac Asimov, the mm -hmm. foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, Asimov writes about this uh, hypothetical research field that he calls psychohistory, mm -hmm. or sometimes he just calls it psychology. So in, this, uh, in the future, in this book, uh, psychology is a mathematical research discipline right. or psychohistory, and uh, the, the best mathematicians are trying to predict uh, the development of very complex systems. These are always large systems, and the idea is that uh, if the systems are sufficiently large, then uh, you can you can uh, make predictions even though the individuals are not predictable. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, uh, this is what we're doing in machine learning. So it's uh, uh, it's quite surprising that Asimov thought about it this way, even though he doesn't quite, maybe the one point that he's, well, I, I'm not saying, I don't want to say missing, but he doesn't stress enough how much it's a data-driven discipline in mm -hmm. the end. I think he was picturing it still a bit like a mathematical discipline and in some sense uh, maybe or maybe we're not yet at the stage that Asimov wants us to be at so we're still at the stage of mucking around with data and not yet understanding Asimov. the mathematics <laughs> yeah, yeah. so uh, but it's it's quite interesting um, so uh, so to, to your question I think also feels like sociology uh, maybe at some point, maybe feel, uh, psychology um, uh, can benefit from this point of view yeah 
So I wanted to ask you about your time um, in an industrial lab, which I think is something that's become more and more popular with, with Facebook and Google starting their own sort of research arms. Um, how do you think your experience in, in Bell Labs um, is mirrored in this sort of new industrial mm-hmm. industrial movement of, of the machine learning field? Or is it something totally new and different? Can we even sort of draw on our past experience with industrial education? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So it seems like in the, uh, uh, at every point in time there is there are some cool industrial places, but then uh, they're never exactly the same like the places in the past. So I think when I was at Bell Labs, that was probably the, the place to be at the time. Uh, they were really doing basic research. Uh, AT&T had a monopoly. They had enough money. They just uh, spent some of it on <laughs> research. They weren't worrying too much what would come out of it. But then, uh, as a consequence, there was this amazing group of people. So there was uh, not just uh, Vladimir Vapnik, who became a PhD advisor, but there was also Jan Lecon. Uh, there was uh, Leon Botou. There was Isabel Guillon, Sarah Soya, uh, John Denker. Uh, I'm probably forgetting uh, Chris Burgess. I'm probably forgetting some important people, Patricia. So it was uh, uh, great people. Uh, many of them are super famous now. Uh, and Alex Smola was a visitor at some point. He was a friend of me before, so I, I put him in touch with them. Um, great group of people. Um, in retrospect, uh, it's, you think it must have been amazing to have them all together in the same place. And actually, it was, it was amazing. And the amazing thing was that they all, I think all of them could could have been a professor somewhere, an important professor at some university, mm. Uh, mm. having 20 PhD students, um, but not having much time to do research anymore. Uh, instead, they all sat in this one place and talked about research the whole day. So there wasn't even much talking about products. I mean, I don't know, I guess AT&T, the product was that they, they were a phone provider. <laughs> there wasn't much right. to do, or maybe, maybe, maybe I just didn't notice. They, they did some uh, handwritten check reading and things like this, uh, but it was a lot about research. Mm. It was a great time. And then later on, uh, I spent time at, at Microsoft Research. It was already a little bit different. Um, so at that point, I think Bell Labs was no longer such a cool place when maybe, at least in, in computer science-based uh, research, that time Microsoft was the coolest place. Uh, Google was only just starting, and uh, they didn't have, I don't think they had any research. They had uh, only some engineers. Um, but Microsoft was a cool place, um, again, because of the concentration of good people. Maybe it wasn't as extreme as in Bell Labs, but it was also uh, an amazing. So, there's, I mean, there, there were also the, the people were the same quality, it's just. Uh, the place was a little bit bigger, mm. and there was already a mixture of with research engineers, etc. Um, uh, some more product development. There was more talking about uh, talking to product groups, etc. Um, machine learning was starting to get more popular. It was getting more traction, um, so that was also very interesting in a different way. And then. Uh, uh, Maybe now people go to uh, to Google or, or to DeepMind or to Facebook, and each of them has a slightly different character. So maybe maybe Google Google initially uh, believed very much that everybody should be an engineer, and uh, they didn't even use the word research much. <laughs> I think that's gradually changing now. Um, but for a while, they they could afford just hiring all the best PhD researchers and then subsequently calling them engineers <laughs> and making them do programming, <laughs> which maybe they weren't so good at. Well, maybe they were. Um, but uh, so gradually, gradually the field has shifted. But um, but still, I think uh, 
many of the interesting ideas are, are still coming also from from academia. Mm. So uh, I don't know how to how to I don't know whether it's hard to make a prediction how things will develop. Uh, but overall, it seems to have we seems to have we seem to have a nice synergy between the two uh, areas: industrial research and academic research. It's different from other fields of science, and when I talk to my colleagues at Max Planck, they don't they don't understand this. They think that uh, mm -hmm. uh, when someone goes to industry, they are lost for science, and uh, they think it must be easy for us to get the best researchers because obviously who would want to work in industry? So that's that's different in our field. Yeah, but it also makes the field exciting, and uh, I think we shouldn't complain about it. We meaning as because now I'm on the academic side again, uh, because uh, of, of sure enough, uh, a lot of our good people get get stolen by industry. Stolen inverted commas. But at the same time, uh, this interest also attracts a lot of uh, young talent into our field. So we have this extreme stream of, of uh, very eager young people coming in and then leaving too early again, <laughs> but then new ones coming in. So it's actually uh, quite an experience. Yeah. Bernard Scholkoff at the Max Planck Institute. Um, really fascinating to hear him talk about the work that he's done. So that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.